This is Macro Horizons, episode 63, Pandemic Fatigue, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of April 6th. And as Friday revealed, we just learned the answer to the age-old question, what happens to Treasury yields if non-farm payrolls drops by 700000 Nothing. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The Treasury market offered us an interesting take on the world in the week just past. We saw a horrendous non-farm payrolls print, an increase in the unemployment rate, and generally speaking, an off-the-charts initial jobless claims print. Now, the fascinating part of all this is it didn't actually lead to any discernible price action in the Treasury market. Treasuries have been retaining a pretty definable range with 10-year yields between 55 and 65 basis points as a theme. Now, we did see a few periods in which rates spiked beyond that, but when we're talking about 10-year Treasury yields anchored at 60 basis points, to describe anything as a spike is somewhat misleading. The other aspect of this week's trade, which I found to be particularly notable, was that two-year yields have been on a steady grind lower. There hasn't been any gapping price action or anything that would suggest that we're dealing with the type of panic-related liquidity buying that we saw at the beginning of March, rather just a recognition on the part of investors that over the course of the next 24 months, there is very little chance that there'll be any change in the Fed's policy rate. That isn't surprising, however, when coupled with the chatter that we've heard about a yield curve cap in the front end, it does follow somewhat intuitively. The lack of response to the weak non-farm payrolls data wasn't limited to the treasury market. In fact, domestic equities put in a surprisingly stable performance, all things considered. Now, we're characterizing this as a result of enough information coming out ahead of time that investors' expectations were appropriately gauged. While the negative 700 print was multiple fold of the consensus, the collective interpretation was that this was just certain companies getting ahead of the pending layoffs and reducing the size of their labor force before the government-mandated shutdowns. This doesn't strike us as something that we shouldn't expect to be repeated in future months. The simple fact that we have seen 10 million initial jobless claims filings over the course of the last two weeks points to ongoing weakness in the labor market with the prospects for the May release of April's figures 
in the multiple millions at this point. As a theme, the treasury market remains in a unique period of consolidation. Our baseline projections remain. We do see a reasonable probability that the front end of the curve experiences negative yields over the course of the next month or two. And with that, we would expect a reasonable bid to be carried out further out the curve. And that puts 25 basis points in the 10-year space easily on the radar as the market and investors as a whole come to grips with the ramifications of the pandemic and its fallout for the real economy. So Ian, a lot of comparisons have been drawn between the current episode and the sort of explosion of debt we saw in the period immediately following World War II. What do you make of that comparison? Well, I think this is definitely an environment in which people are looking for any historical comparisons to just ground expectations going forward. So obviously, a lot of comparisons have been drawn with the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, the Great Depression, and the increase in government debt post-World War II also has a certain degree of relevance in this situation. There are a few differences, though, that I think really warrant pointing out. The first being that the Fed is now actively in the process of monetizing the federal deficit. Now, that wasn't at play following World War II, and I think this is almost as important, if not more so, during the interim period, the dollar has emerged as the indisputable reserve currency. And as long as that continues to be the case, that would mean that a lot of the dynamics that were playing out in the mid-1940s simply don't hold today. The biggest one being supply and demand mattered a lot more 80 years ago in the treasury market than it does today. Another differentiating factor is this simple reality that from 1942 to 1951, the Fed capped long-term treasury yields at 2.5%. And that wasn't the only cap. They also capped short treasury bills at three-eighths of a percent up until 1947. So although there are a lot of other differences at play, in essence, the Fed was creating a version of yield curve control. Now, while it's possible that the current FOMC decides to implement some yield caps, I wouldn't expect it to be anywhere near as exorbitant as it was in the follow-through from World War II. And bringing it back to this millennium, how about that price reaction to NFP, negative 701,000? I mean, imagine what it would have been if it was negative a thousand. I'd expect that we would have seen the exact same price action, given what we know now. And that's simply a investor community that is braced for very bad economic numbers. We saw that in the price action that followed the 3.3 and 6.7 million increase in initial jobless claims. It's not as if the market isn't responding to the negative economic implications from the coronavirus. It just already has responded. And the information that's coming in is simply serving to confirm, in many cases, some of the more dire outlooks already in place. One of the other fascinating aspects about the BLS report is Labor Department said that this represented a period before the official lockdowns. 
My take on that is just because it was before the official lockdowns doesn't mean that companies were not preemptively shrinking their labor force when faced with the realities of the pandemic and what it was going to mean for revenues. One of the places where that was most obvious was in leisure and hospitality. Of the negative 701,000 NFP number, over 450,000 of that was just in leisure and hospitality, presuming restaurants. Now that to me just makes intuitive sense. A lot of social distancing guidance around closing restaurants, closing bars would naturally feed through into exorbitant layoffs in that subsector of employment without seeing it in the broader figures. I mean, Ian, to your point, if we're seeing 10 million initial jobless claims over two weeks, it's impossible to believe that there were only 700,000 people who lost their jobs in March. To me, this really just sets up next month's payrolls print to be absolutely record shattering in terms of some of the eye popping negative numbers that are going to show up. And John, you bring up a great point. It's a sticker shock problem right now. The numbers that are coming through are so far beyond what has previously driven financial markets and what we have previously seen in the realized economic data. The jobless claims are a great example. They're multiple fold above even the prior highs. So what does the market do with that? To some extent, it's coronavirus fatigue, but the flip side of that is the market simply doesn't have the ability to judge how bad it really is. And of course then, what we're thinking about in the third quarter and beyond is how ostensibly strong the data might ultimately look. I'd make the argument that at this moment, the consensus is the first half of the year were effectively shut down, and it's not until June or July after the economy slowly starts to reopen that we'll be able to get a better sense for whether or not a lot of the Fed's efforts and a lot of the efforts from federal, state, and local governments have succeeded in bridging the gap of funding for companies who simply needed to shut their doors and let all of their employees go to wait out the virus. So maybe one way that's good to frame this is it's going to be bad for a few months. The question then is, where is unemployment at the end of 2020? Where is it at the end of 2021? I have a really hard time coming up with a high conviction opinion on that, but say even out to 2021, if we're able to achieve some version of a V-shaped recovery, call unemployment somewhere around 4 or 5%. Now, we're not going to go back to 3.5%, but at least in somewhat moderate terms. One thing that came out this week that I thought was particularly ominous is the CBO updated their baseline budget forecasts. And one thing that they noted is their baseline now is for unemployment to be 9% still at the end of next year. Does that seem reasonable, too pessimistic, too optimistic, or should we basically just take any of those forecasts with such a big grain of salt as to not really care? Well, the CBO does have a tendency in their forecast to be momentum following and not leading. So I would put it in the category of an interesting piece of information. And if the world continues to go in its current trajectory, that that number eh, might make sense. The implied assumption, as you point out, is that there is no V-shaped recovery in that scenario. And in fact, any economic upside would simply be spread out over multiple quarters, and it wouldn't be condensed into the year, year and a half, which most people in the market are using as their baseline and then skewing the odds on either side of that. 
To me, this brings up the question of what does inflation look like in the second half of the year? What does inflation do when eventually the economy does start to recover from these shutdowns? We've had an unprecedented amount of fiscal and monetary policy stimulus pumped into the economy. And as we've talked about throughout the last cycle, a lot of that stimulus operates with a lag. So if in fact the bounce in the labor market, the bounce in consumption does occur in the second half of the year, and that 9% 2021 unemployment number proves a bit too pessimistic, at least in my opinion, there's a real risk that we see a meaningful pickup in inflation and inflation expectations, not to mention the prospects for some sort of deal on the oil front that offers a boost to oil prices as well. Yeah, Ben, I think that your observation about the energy complex is going to be key in near to medium term inflation expectations. If we find ourselves in a situation where oil is consistently trading in a 20 to $30 a barrel range, that's going to be problematic for spurring any upside for headline inflation. The core side, however, I think presents a much more interesting argument. Now, generally speaking, a ton of stimulus in the system should drive inflation higher. But recall that the Fed was struggling for several years to generate the typical demand side inflation that one might expect given where the overall labor force was. What the Fed contented itself with was to produce asset inflation. Now, we're already going back down that path via lower rates, which should eventually flow through to the mortgage market and subsequently prop up housing. Therefore, I will be once again watching owner's equivalent rent and shelter costs in the latter part of 2020 as an early indication of any potential reflationary pressures. And the reflationary ambitions, one thing I've been maybe not a little surprised by, but watching very closely is the fact that we've seen break-evens pick up pretty notably over the past week, call it two weeks. Part of that is no doubt due to optimism on an oil deal, but some of that is also just improved liquidity in the tips market, as well as a stabilization in the economic outlook where true deflation might not be coming out. The nuance here that's worth flagging, though, is nominal yields have not pushed higher. The Fed's QE program and forward guidance to keep rates lower for longer has overwhelmed any inflationary ambition, as well as any concern of a supply shock resulting from funding the fiscal package. Instead, what we've seen is real yields push further and further into negative territory. Ten-year reals now are negative 50 basis points. To me, that shows not only how aggressive the Fed's been with their bond buying program, but also just a rather pessimistic longer-term growth outlook. The fact that 10-year reels are negative 50 basis points really doesn't say much for GDP expectations out through 2020. And John, that's very consistent with some of the price action that we're seeing in the nominal market, particularly the shape of the yield curve. There's been a remarkably tight range in place for 10-year yields in particular, but it has had a slight downward bias. So we have a downward bias further out the curve. Two-year yields continue to set fresh lows, but not at such a pace as to avoid a flatter yield curve. We've been on about timing the re-steepening of the curve, and the first leg of that has already occurred. It ended up getting us to roughly 78 basis points twos tens, but the curve has since corrected back to the middle of the range. The stage that we're currently entering is the period where QE 
overshadows any inflationary impulse, and we find ourselves with the curve grinding flatter and flatter. It's not inconceivable to imagine a world where two-year yields are at or slightly below zero, and 10-year yields are close to 25 basis points. A curve, twos, tens at 25 basis points, that's old hat for this market. And I don't frankly think it would be met with any real surprise at this stage. The part of this trade that's not as consensus is what happens in the second half of the year. John, as you point out, forward inflation expectations still remain relatively subdued, but that doesn't mean that we won't have a period where there is some sense of rebound for the broader economy. And while we might not actually have the realized inflation to prove it, expectations will be on the rise for consumer prices to start edging at least somewhat higher. So we've talked a lot about what the second half will hold, what the recovery will ultimately look like. But what about this week in particular? We've seen yields push right up against or even through the bottom of their respective ranges in some tenors, and the market is now entering overbought territory. This all coming at a time when we have a short week ahead with supply, but outside of that, no real meaningful data, if any data is meaningful anymore. So how are we thinking about the next few sessions here in the market? My baseline assumption is that if the treasury market is not going to respond to a negative 700,000 NFP print, they're not going to respond to anything on the horizon outside of a decided shift in the paradigm related to the pandemic. So are we going to have unexpected economic reopenings in Europe? That seems unlikely. If anything, the risks are skewed to additional lockdowns or the ones that are currently in place being extended. And so from that perspective, an in-range consolidation, which is our baseline scenario, is probably an incrementally more bearish outcome than we might ultimately see. One thing to be sure is it's only been one Friday since the middle of January that 10-year yields have gone up. I think we can pretty confidently say that next week they're at least going to be flat. Yeah. Flat yields, flat yield curve. This is definitely the quarter for the flattening. Well, it is all about hashtag flattening the curve. Not soon enough. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will have very little new incoming information to drive trading direction. We do have the core PPI and core CPI series, but the holiday shortened week will limit the response time investors have to incorporate that economic data. More to the point, inflation isn't an issue at this point in the cycle and probably won't be for a very long time. Instead, given the downward pressure that we have seen on the energy complex, the base case scenario is that we will see lower headline prints, at least for the next several months. Now, whether that ultimately translates into downward pressure on the core, that is an open question and one that we don't really expect to have answered before the second half of the year. We're on board with the interpretation that the truncated trading session will create a particularly high emphasis on incoming headlines associated with the coronavirus lockdowns. And as always, we will continue to track and trade each incremental piece of information associated with the spread of the virus and mortality stats. 
So in the context of a treasury market poised for a period of consolidation, we'll be keeping an eye on a few of our favored technical measures. Notably, stochastics in the two-year sector show a market that has been overbought for quite some time. Fast stochastics are at 9 which is frankly the lowest that they have been in several years. Now, just because momentum is at such an extreme doesn't necessitate a bearish period to work momentum back to the middle of the range. It's very consistent with a market that has broadly repriced and is now in the position that a sideways grind will suffice in terms of working off that momentum. Another sector that we've been watching pretty closely is the energy complex after being oversold for quite some time. We have seen a reversal, momentum being worked off there. Fast and slow stochastics are at 48 and 31 respectively. Now part of this is the geopolitical situation and the price fixing on again, off again. And the ramifications for other economies outside of the big exporters continue to reverberate. We'll be keeping an eye on some of the key emerging markets as this situation continues to develop and the question of whether or not investors will become habituated to such low energy prices eventually does have some type of answer and resolution. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. In light of the virus lockdown, we've started a daily version of Macro Horizons titled Morning Musings. Shoot me an email if you're interested in the link. It's a limited time engagement, kind of like the McRib sandwich, not the 1984 version. Hmm. Or maybe it is. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. 
This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.